When Suicide is Murder is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses topics that may be sensitive and triggering, as well as some graphically detailed situations. Listener discretion is advised. It is estimated that each year, approximately 1 million people die from suicide. That equals about one death every 40 seconds. There's a myth that once someone is suicidal, he or she will be suicidal forever. Actually, people who want to kill themselves are only suicidal for a limited period of time. Mostly, it's because they want to escape a situation that they feel is just unbearable. If you think you know someone who is contemplating suicide, the best thing you can do is talk to them about getting help and see what you can do. I decided to release this episode today for a couple of special reasons. The first one being, today is my birthday, so happy birthday to me. But also, today is the 31st anniversary of the day my Aunt Lynn's remains were mysteriously hidden. Children often have their own way of remembering life events. There is a saying that in the eyes of a child, mother is God. Some mothers can be monsters, and a child will still love them wholeheartedly. But for that to happen, there has to be good with the bad. Those are the moments when you become aware that there is a revolving door of unconditional love. I saw that love in my Aunt Lynn. I saw that and nothing else. Lynn died just a few days before I turned six years old, and ironically, she was put in the ground in that unmarked grave on my birthday. I believe I was supposed to find her. It has to be fate. The world has a funny way of setting out a path for you. It was just meant to be me. I can still see my aunt's smiling face walking through my front door. She would come over to my house and come inside and get me. I was always so excited to see her. Lynn had this awesome Chevy Nova, and she would hide money and little gifts in there for me. It would be like a little treasure hunt every time she came to visit. Then we would sit out there for a while together. She would let me sit in her lap and steer her car around the parking lot. I remember her smile looking at me when she made me smile. I loved her. I still love her. We had a connection. When you grow up hard and you feel like the world is already a heavy place, the bonds and connections that you make as a child can either make you or break you. As a growing adult, when you're looking back through your timeline, you can see things so differently. 
It's like watching a movie as an adult that you watched when you were a kid. Things are just framed differently, and it makes you wonder, what the hell, and how did I not notice? There are things like that that come up in the story, but it still hasn't changed my view. Lynn was who she was, and I only saw one side of her. I'm learning so much as I dig deep into this family and her life and the case. No one is perfect, that's a given. But I'm finding things out and it's really hard for me to hear sometimes. But also, I remember that times were different back then and some of the things that we might find unacceptable now might have been a regular thing for people in that time. Hell, I don't know. Maybe I'm trying to excuse the ones I love. Anyways. One of the memories forever branded in my brain was one of the scariest moments in the world for a little child. We were at a carnival with my family. We were having so much fun. The lights, the music, the smells, the rides, the food. It was a great night. My uncle Don, which was her husband at the time, he used to run the ride that spins really, really fast and you stick to the wall. That's actually still my favorite ride when I take my kids to the fair. When I came off the ride, she was standing outside with her husband Don. I was so happy to see her. And as I walked toward her, she started to shake and fell to the ground. She was making noises and her body was tense and she looked as if she was in pain. I was terrified. I had no clue what was happening. I remember my Uncle Don grabbing her and trying to ease her fall and then just holding her and keeping her on her side until the shaking finished. It wasn't until I was an adult that I learned that she had had epilepsy since she was born and this was actually a semi-regular thing for her. I also didn't know that studies have confirmed that repeated seizures can cause neurological damage creating sporadic, aggressive, and violent behaviors, depression, anxiety, and an overall different view of how you see the world around you. She did have these traits at times. I really think that this affected the people that she loved the most. You will hear in interviews that despite her erratic outbursts, she was greatly loved for all her other traits. I only have one vague memory of actually going to her house. I know she was cooking and I was playing outside with a son and daughter of hers. The biggest, fondest memories that I have being a child were the holidays. They were huge. We exchanged gifts and things were so normal. My grandmother usually hosted them, and then later my mom took over the pleasure of being the host, and man, it was amazing. I couldn't wait for those moments, and those days, and those hours, spending them with the family. They were my favorites. Thanksgiving, Christmas, they were like super involved. Relatives came from all over. There was turkey, pies, and all the comfort food smells filled the air. Everyone laughed, they reminisced, they ate and they drank until dusk before taking the trip home. Some of those trips were very long, but we just couldn't all wait to get back together again. I can still see the smiles on all the faces of all those people as if it were yesterday. Looking back now, I can pinpoint the best times and still think to myself, 
you would never know there were sinister personalities lurking behind those smiles. And I'm not specifically referring to Lynn. The story goes way deeper, but we'll talk about that more in a later episode. After Lynn died, the family kind of died inside, and everything fell apart. I don't know what it was about her that held all the strings together, but she was our ball of yarn. People just didn't really come around anymore, and it wasn't that they didn't try. It just got weird. The gatherings lessened, things got too quiet, and eventually it just died out. Honestly, I don't ever remember meeting Phil, and he would have had to have been married to my Aunt Lynn for at least half of my life at this point, which was about three years. There are pictures of him with the family here and there, but I honestly can say that I don't even remember him. Just the name. I only remember his name from the stories. And from what I've been told by my side of the family and Phil's own, he was not one you would want to know anyway. The day I found out Lynn died was devastating to me. I know a lot of people downplay the situation. They try to tell me I was too young and they act like it is too much trouble for me to care, saying that it shouldn't matter to me. But honestly, that couldn't be further from the truth. I am a family person. I want the big dinners. I want to make it huge again. I want people to get together. I want people to love each other. I want people to put their shit aside and just be able to get together for a day and be okay. Because family is so important. I remember when they told me, I climbed into my mother's lap. I didn't go to school that day. I was crying unconsolably. I remember being sick to my stomach. I remember she was supposed to be coming by the following day. I'm pretty sure that they didn't tell me at that time that she supposedly committed suicide, but I do remember that because I understood death, it hurt me. Little five-year-old me, I was in pain. I loved her. At some point, we went to go pick up Lynn's things from the home where she lived with Phil. And all I heard was some yelling, and then people started bringing things down and packing them into cars really fast. I guess the neighbors ended up with some of her belongings eventually, too. They would have lived in the apartment next door to where she died. The one I visited when I went to look at the layout, trying to figure out if it was possible for Phil not to have heard the shot. She had an owl penny bank that she loved, a piano that she played. Her great-grandmother actually taught her how to play over the summers when she was a small child, and she loved the piano for the rest of her life. Those few items went to family members, but there was a chair that my aunt was really fond of. It's like a man in his recliner and his remote. Lynn had her peaceful rocking chair. I'm sure it provided many comforts to her as she was having a rough go of her marriage to Phil. So, about a week after the neighbor received her rocking chair, things started to happen. 
It started out small, like just lights, but then it became like all of the lights, so you can't really dismiss that. One light here and there was one thing when you're in a rush out the door, but all of them? That alone would give me the creeps. You come home and on a regular basis, all of the lights are on? Oh hell no. This also started happening with the coffee pot. It would have burnt leftover coffee in the bottom of the pot by the time they got home, even though they were sure that they turned it off. Then eventually, they had to start unplugging it after they used it, using the excuse that they thought it was faulty. It started to be that all the lights were on and all the cupboard doors were open when they came home. The refrigerator would be open, jars broken, things spilled onto the floor, Eventually, it got to a point where the chair would be in a different spot either in the morning when they woke up or when they left and would come back home. That was when they decided to get rid of the chair. Apparently after they did, it all stopped. I'm not sure where the story originated from, who told it, or if somebody knew someone that lived in the apartment complex, but you have to wonder. As a kid, I often wished that I could have gotten it after I heard about all this because I thought that maybe it would be a way for me to be near her. I even used to think about her and cry so hard some nights in bed that I swore I would see her in my room at the foot of my bed. I was really little and this actually happened for a while after she passed. That may have just been wishful thinking or a little girl's imagination gone wild, hoping she was watching over me but maybe there could have been something more to that. I know if you truly have an open mind, the strangest possibilities can become a reality. The night that I published the first episode of this podcast, I had a dream about her. I had been doing research on her and the family for about two months at this point, and nothing had ever gotten to me really. But that night, out of nowhere, I had a crazy dream. I dreamt that I was several rows behind her on a bus and I couldn't see her face. She got on the bus and shot herself. The driver just drove calmly and no one was worried but me. They wouldn't let me go look at her and told me they were taking her to the hospital. All I could see was her brown hair and her head leaning against the window through the opening between the seat and the window. Then when we got to the hospital, she was taken away, and I was sent into a waiting room where I was crying and desperately trying to explain to the receptionist that I needed to get into the back and go see her for myself. They kept fighting me and telling me she was dead. They made me do some COVID-related tests where I had to sway my arms back and forth really slow to odd, ominous music. Finally, they let me into the back to talk to the woman who was doing her autopsy. The woman told me there was something weird going on, so I asked her to show me. We walked into the back room where Lynn was. She was fully clothed and sat up on the table. She looked sick and just stared. We locked eyes and we held this for a long pause. I was so scared, but finally I opened my mouth and I asked if she killed herself and all she said was no. And that was it because I was jolted awake. You know when you wake up to someone saying your name? I don't know if you've ever felt that, but it's happened to me before. 
This time, it was a man's voice, and it said, Hey, Jill. Really close to me. I was actually scared when I woke up, because it sounded like somebody was right there. And I was alone in the house, so it was incredibly terrifying. I so far haven't dreamt of her since, but I just thought this was really, really strange since it happened on the day I dropped the first episode, and I wanted to share it with you guys. It probably was just my nerves finally getting to me about all of this, but nonetheless, it was scary as hell. It felt so real, and of all the nights I had been up working on this, that dream on that night and how I woke up just creeped me the fuck out. It also made me think, what kind of shit am I actually stirring up here? I guess only time will tell. Growing up for me was hard, and not just because of my aunt, but because things in my home were broken. I remember that whenever Lynn would come up, no one in the family believed she committed suicide. Some days, I thought about it, and I believed that our family was just not willing to accept it. When I was a teenager, things were incredibly horrible for me. I felt unwanted. I was homeless by myself and on drugs. It was dark for me then. In some of my deepest, darkest moments, alone and with no one, I would think about Lynn. There were times I was just in so much pain, I would sympathize with the need to do something like that, and I would idolize her for having what I thought of then as courage to do something to take her pain away, for giving herself the relief I was so desperately seeking. There is one reason I can honestly say I didn't get there, and that's because I found someone to share my life with. Someone that actually wanted me. He gave me purpose. He made me a mother. He took away from my sorrows and showed me that I could have hope and that I could be someone else. We became so much together, and I can now with 100% certainty say that suicide is no way out. Knowing now the things that I would have missed out on, I just, I'm just so grateful. I feel like maybe Lynn felt that way too after her failed suicide attempt, that she was so grateful for her life because it actually showed in the days leading up to her death. And she was doing things that appeared to be normal. I know I keep jumping around a bit, but this episode is about me too, so that you can understand why the answers to my questions are so important to me. I believe this family needs a kick into high gear and to be set on the right track. Maybe airing some shit out will put things into perspective and hopefully break some cycles. Lynn wasn't even present for her own funeral. I guess Phil took Lynn's ashes from the crematorium and just never showed up. Her mother had to move forward with the services without her. I'm going to have possession of the sign-in book from her funeral soon and I plan to use it to talk to anyone who was there who was willing to talk to me. When the family talked about Lynn and her death, it was always the same two things, murder, ashes stolen. I didn't understand what that meant growing up. I just repeated the basics. My aunt died, no one believed she committed suicide, she haunted the neighbors, and her husband stole her ashes. It seemed simple to me. But now, one thing I don't understand is, how the fuck no one was driven to get her remains? 
or how this was left like this for so long. It was happenstance that I would come across my aunt's death certificate and start this journey. It is not something I meant to do. But by looking at it, one question about a schoolyard led to a heartbreaking discovery of information. So as I looked at the certificate, I saw that she had been shot in her home but died at a schoolyard. And that was my first question. I started to speculate, well, was her wound not that bad? Did she try to drive somewhere? And this was when I knew nothing, of course. It was like 7.30 p.m. on a regular night, and I dove in. I had no fucking clue what kind of rabbit hole I was crawling into. I thought, well, I want answers. I want to look for Phil. I want to look at his face, and I want to ask him, and I want him to tell me the story. I wanted to ask, where the fuck are Lynn's remains? I was pissed off. When I thought about it, I'm like, well, maybe I need to give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe I need to hear his side of the story, because honestly, if things were normal, this would be really sad for so long that I was lied to and this poor man had to go through such a devastating death of his wife and for the family to have attacked him. So I started my internet search. I didn't even know what I was looking for because all I knew was his first and last name because that was on the death certificate. I kept coming across him, but it said he was already dead and I couldn't be sure that it was him because I knew nothing else. I couldn't match his middle initial. I couldn't match his age. I knew nothing. So I decided to wait until the morning when I could ask other family members more questions about him and try to piece that puzzle together. I knew that if it was him, that I would be really disappointed that I wasn't going to be able to ask him anything. What I decided to do next was start looking up her name and his name together. Maybe to see if I could come up with a marriage license or anything that would have more information. And there was a website that kept popping up. But finally, out of frustration at finding nothing and pure curiosity, I clicked it. And what I saw shocked me. It was a grave finding website. People just go around logging graves. It's like some kind of hobby that I never knew about. The cemetery that she's in, it actually says it's like 30% logged. I don't know how these people have time to do this stuff, but I am forever grateful for this weird ass hobby because there she was on this site. It was her name, her birth date, her death date, the cemetery name, the plot and memorial ID. And the site said that she had been added on December 18th of 2018. So literally, we would have never found her before anyways. And he was long gone in 2002. So we've only even had the opportunity to find her for the last two years. I had a really hard time even believing that it was her though. It turned out that she was put there just 14 days after she was picked up from the crematorium. And the whole time, we thought that he just had her. I was so excited that I screenshotted everything. I sent a message to the person that uploaded her to ask how the heck he knew it was her, and then I texted two people, Lynn's brother Kevin, and after debating it for a few minutes, 
and then going back to bed and debating it some more and then getting back up, I texted her son Stephen. I was hesitant about telling him because I was nervous and I didn't know how he would take it. I was scared that maybe I was wrong and I didn't want to get his hopes up that it was really her. It was 11.37 p.m. I had no clue what to write. Finally, I just put, I found Lynn's grave. I'll call you when I verify. I know that sounds so stupid, but I didn't know what else to write. The next morning, he replied. He says, what? That's odd. Kind of weird and hard to take. I guess just let me know what's up. I'm still trying to process it. Me, at 10.30. Yeah, well, when you get a chance, I'd also like to know what you know about the circumstances of her death. Steve, why do you want to find out what I know? It was a suicide, or that's what they say. Me, I requested the autopsy report last night. I'll call you in a bit. Steve, I have the police report, but not the autopsy report. Me, ooh, I want to see that. I was going to request that next. Me, at 11.13 a.m., I asked the cemetery caretaker to contact me. Steve, what cemetery? Me. Well, just give me a minute because I really want to make sure that it's really her. The info wasn't made available until 2018. I'll call you soon. When I finally spoke to the caretaker over the phone, he looked it up and tried to tell me the area that it was in and that he wouldn't be back for a while. He had some business to take care of. He told me that I would never find it on my own because they do not even let people put temporary markers there. It either goes one way or another. You say you will put a headstone there, and you do, or can't afford it and it never gets done, or you just say no and you don't. I was excited and sick to my stomach at the same time. I couldn't wait for him to get back. I just, I felt like I needed to go there right now. I was so close to being there with her and to telling her that I found her that I just, I needed to know, and I had to go, and I knew what this would mean to the family. I spoke to my uncle over the phone off and on all day, and he eventually met me at the cemetery, and we waited for the caretaker to get back. We walked up and down all the aisles according to where I thought she was from what the caretaker told me, and we read tons of headstones thinking that maybe we would find one for Phil and just her name wouldn't be on it or something but we didn't find anything. We even actually started to make jokes about who was going to dig her up and bring her home if it was really her. And honestly, part of us was not fucking joking either. Eventually, the caretaker showed up. The man opened the book to look up her name and matched it. That was my first super exciting moment where I was like, oh my God, her name is in the book. And I wanted to know what else it said, if there was any kind of other information in there. So when he got up to go look at his map, I put my phone on silent and quickly snapped a photo when he turned his back. I needed to see whatever was on that page. Sadly, it was only her name and her burial date and the marker request. I was still pretty certain that it was Phil that put her there. I figured that's probably why he wasn't allowed to give us any information. He kept saying that we would need documents, saying that we were who we said we were, and that they had to be notarized, and that we had to put in writing what we wanted 
so that he could pass it off to the cemetery lawyers. And every time I asked him, what documents do we need? He was like totally cryptic. I had no clue what the hell I was doing and I just wanted some direction. I wanted a straight answer. How the hell do I get her out of there? He was very adamant to the fact that they frown upon disinterment, but they almost always allow anyone to put a headstone there because they prefer that the grave sites have headstones. He said that they don't get involved with family matters and there are too many issues with families having different ideas of what should happen with remains and that we had to figure things out for ourselves and provide him the documents but wouldn't elaborate again on what those documents were. I was so confused. But at that moment, I only cared about making sure we knew that Lynn was there. Let's go see where she's at. Let's make sure this is her. And then we can worry about how to get her out of there later. And we left his office. He walked us a short way from where we were searching by ourselves. She was on the north side of the old part of the cemetery. I learned so much during this. I actually looked it up. I guess when people commit suicide, it's a thing to bury them on the north side. The Association for Gravestone Studies states that the north side of the cemetery is less desirable. Therefore, that's where they put the peasants, the paupers, the slaves, suicides, minorities, any undesirables. In the 1800s, when they were putting suicides there, they even used to put the headstones backwards and the remains upside down with the head vertically below the feet. This was a way to ostracize them after death. We had to search for other headstones, find the ones that would be around it, and then that's when we knew that that blank spot was her. At 2.50 p.m. on August 11th, 2020, 31 years in the making, my uncle and I placed our hands on the grass upon where Lynn's remains had been this whole time. My uncle sat and sobbed. This was a hard realization for him. There were so many things that he now felt he could say to her and so much he never got to. No one should ever have to wait that long to truly grieve. This left a huge scar on our hearts. And now she was there, like really, really there. My uncle was angry and sad and relieved all at once. He wanted her out of that disgraceful hole where she had been left alone for so long. But at that moment, all he could do was cry. I still couldn't process it. I still haven't processed it. It's been two months, and I've been so hard at work with all of this that I really haven't had time, and I don't think I will process it until we get to move her. I was really full of joy that we had her. There she was, and I was going to be able to at least tell the remaining family members that I found her. This whole time, she was so close to us, and we never knew it. 
I was able to tell her son Stephen. I felt so stupid taking a picture of grass and sending it to him. I ended up taking my locket off of my keychain. It's a little silver heart. And I took that and I placed it on the grass so that the picture wouldn't just be empty. And that was what I sent to him. And that was the first, that was the first time he laid eyes on, on where she was. And there was a lot of triumph in finding her, but also it was like, like what's next? And I didn't know, I didn't know where I was going with this. I took her son Steven there on a separate occasion. It was more uncomfortable than I could ever have imagined it would be. I had to walk away. He needed his time with his mom. The pain I saw on him that day with his head down and tears in his eyes, it wrenched my stomach and it clawed at my heart. He paced he got on his phone, he sobbed. He was in total and complete distress. There was so much going on in his emotions that he really broke as a man that day. I hope I never have to experience such despair in front of me ever again. I've watched Steven mourn for years. He's had so much trauma in his life. He just needed his mom and her not being there affected his ability to deal with the tough things in his life. Seeing him that way scared me a little. I was worried that this might break him. There was just so much pain being brought up and with the pain came anger for me. I'm broken in this realization that there is no one to prosecute if it is what it looks like. And I wanted to know why. There are so many whys. Why had no one ever found her ashes? Why had no one ever looked? Why had no one ever looked for Phil? There were too many questions to ask. And who the fuck do I ask them to? Will I offend anyone? Will it really matter if I shake things up? I understand that some families just can't come to terms with such a hefty load to bear, but when there is so much pain and so much doubt, and so much to question, you begin to wonder why no one pushed hard for some truth. Was there something wrong with Lynn? Was there something wrong with the family? It just, it feels weird to me. I was told that there was a reason to fear Phil, that he was a strange man. Could that be the reason why no one pursued it? I want answers. And most of all, I want cooperation from the police department. If they were 100% sure that it was suicide and that they did everything possible that they could, then they would be talking to me. The police told me that they destroyed all of the evidence and even the police reports, and I can see that they didn't collect what they should have. We're going to get to that very soon, but also in another episode. When I reached out to a lawyer to find out how we go about getting the rights to her remains, the lawyer said to me, 
because of next of kin laws as it stands, he had every right to her remains to do with as he wished. The lawyer even told me, quote, he could have thrown them in the trash if that was his wish and it was his right to do so as her husband, end quote. What in the actual fuck? In Lynn's final words, she expressed herself as a strong-willed woman who clearly was seeking a divorce. And as unhappy as she was in her marriage, there was no sign of severe depression, as they put it in the police reports and autopsy when referring to her letter. You'll agree with me when you hear the letter? It probably emasculated him and pissed him off. Lynn was a throwaway human to the police department. In the next episode, the last words of Lynn York, a letter to her husband. Phil, it's true. Our bed is hard to sleep in and I have back problems, but at least one of three times I am not in bed with you is just because I can't stand you anymore. We're also going to hear from her son. It was kind of a shock and awe. Traumatic to where it just my conscience shut it out for a while. And what if she's not in there? You know, if he did something. Hide her in the ground with no marker, nobody will know where she is, she'll never be found. Kind of like, oh, is this really you, Mom? Did we find you, finally? Or is this a deception that he planned years ahead? Oh, they might find her, but they're not going to. I'm your host, Jill Starr. This podcast is compiled of my own case files I obtained through family, public record, interviews, and personal conclusions. Thank you so much for listening and subscribing. Please take a moment to visit my website, suicidecrime.com. There you can find many ways to support my podcast, including a link to my Patreon, where you can get access to bonus content, pictures, documents, and branded merch. There's also a link at the bottom of the page where you can donate to a new burial for Lynn. Thank you as always, and stay true to your family.